0: Welcome into this week's edition of the Pipeline Podcast. I am your host, Jordan Schusterman. Joined as always by MLB Pipeline experts Jonathan Mayo and Jim Callis. And gentlemen, the draft is finally here, or at least it is right around the corner. And I believe this will be the last year recording before the draft commences on Monday, June 3rd. So, Jonathan, Jim, how are you guys doing? Are you guys surviving? Final mock drafts. Jonathan, you, you excited? Monday.
1: I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs>
0: Uh, You know, Jim's doing the
1: the mock as we record this. I I get a a little bit of breathing room before I have to dig back in. So I'm feeling good.
2: Yeah, no, I'm feeling okay on my I mean, the funny thing is, on one hand, you want to have the best mock possible. And I'm working very hard on this one, even though it's been a crazy week with everything else we have going on. The other hand, the only mock that really matters is your last mock. Nobody's going to go back and say, hey. Five days before the draft, (laughs) you had that guy going twenty. Great call. If I switch it in my final mock, so there's kind of that dichotomy. But no, it it feels pretty good. I mean, uh, I feel like there's uh, a good amount of actionable intelligence right now, down to about the fourteenth pick.
0: Oh wow! Some more
2: murky intelligence from. Well, I mean, I'm not claiming I got all. Like, (laughs) I, I just like I feel like I can have a logical guy for each spot and if you move names around on me and say okay no that guy goes here and this guy goes there then I can alter the like I can at least I'm not saying I i, I know it mm-hmm. but like I, I feel pretty good and then from 15 to about I don't know the mid 20s somewhere like okay you, you've heard things you know there's things to go on and then really at the end of the first round you're just kind of guessing because you don't really know who's going to go there or you know who's going to be there so you, you you're trying to figure some stuff out but like i don't know it feels pretty good i'm you know not claiming i'm gonna get 34 picks in a row right or anything but like i at least feel like there's actual intelligence although at the same time i uh i i, I still will love more text to roll in I, I was on a flight and and jonathan i told you i was all excited because it was a smaller plane so i had go go air and you can text with t-mobile Except the Wi-Fi was out the whole flight, so oh, I cannot text. killer! I couldn't text while on the flight, so I was a little limited. That's the thing. worst, All right.
0: Yeah, that's that's a tough bounce, especially the week of the draft, where every text is so crucial. Very every important. bit of actionable uh, intelligence, as you as you, as you mentioned, well, the worst uh, thing that
1: the worst thing that happens uh, in terms of the sort of behind the scenes working on a mock is when you think you have things lined up, and then you get a bit of information and. If you take one guy out, it then creates a hole. And it's not just, oh, I need to move this guy here. It can then open up like three or four holes. So sometimes the worst thing is when you think you've got everything lined up where at least you have someone plausible in each spot, and then you get some info from a team down, like picking 20 seconds, say, no, we wouldn't take that guy. And then you have to make the decision, especially on the last one that we do on Monday – which is the one we use as our scorecard to the decision, well, do I want to move that? Because if I do, there's a chance I'm going to end up getting three wrong as opposed to that one wrong. Um, And there have been times that I just said, you know what, I'm leaving that name in there because it creates too many last minute problems.
0: Right, and so Jim, let's let's try and get a little more specific here. I mean, it's fun talking in vague terms about the the mock mock drafting process, but in terms of this two thousand nineteen draft that is about to get underway, you mentioned okay, you feel pretty good about maybe through picks fourteen, but where where are we like? past past two do we start to to kind of flip some coins or or let's get a little bit specific here at the top of the draft of course a lot of people are expecting the Orioles to go with the top prospect Adley Rutschman and if that holds serve then I don't think anybody's gonna be too surprised but number two a lot of discussion about maybe Bobby Wood Jr. the top highest prospect going to the Royals that has been heavily rumored being there is that when it starts after that or are you still not even sure about those top two picks Jim
2: no, I mean, I think that that's accurate. And it's funny because like Jonathan Pratt is the same thing. Like I, I, I'm not, I don't have the twenties plot out in my head, but like, I kind of have how my mock draft or at least the, the different parameters and variables are in my head for like how I would plot out the first 15 or 16 picks right now. And I still think it's Rutchman one. I still think it's wit two. You know, you hear, Oh, like Rutchman shoulder. We're not sure there's an injury in the past. The vast majority of teams I talk to think that's just way overstated and it's trying to you know, leverage and misdirection. Nobody – I shouldn't say nobody because I haven't talked to all 30 teams. The vast majority of people I talk to think that's all smokescreen and, and Rutschman's shoulder isn't concerned. And, concern. and, and I, I would throw this out there too. I ran this by a couple guys and they said, yeah, you're right. If Rutschman had a serious shoulder injury, which eh, by the looks of how he throws, it would be hard to believe. But let's just say he had a serious shoulder injury and it was going to leave him with a below-average arm – you still could take him one-one because he's a switch-hitting catcher who can really hit, has huge power, draws a ton of walks, can really receive and block, and has great leadership. How many guys steal these days anyway? So anyway, yes, those those two are kind of locked in. I think the tipping point. <coughs> excuse me. The tipping point is at three. Do you believe the White Sox are going with C.J. Abrams, who is the, is the hitter in the top six hitters who everybody thinks could probably go one to six, is perhaps going to slide? There's a little rumor out there. That they're like, oh, maybe he's slipping a little bit. Not sure where that's coming from. Do they go Abrams or do they go with the college bat like Andrew Vaughn? And, and then you have different scenarios after that. I, I feel like four – it's funny <laughs> because I'm saying this before I write my mock drafts. Who knows okay. how it will come out. I feel like J.J. Bladay at four is pretty solid too. Like Rushman 1, Witt 2, Bladet 4, and then 3, 5, 6 are, are, are different you know, combinations. And then, you know, you kind of hear the same guys going 7 through 11 or 12. And then after mm-hmm. that, it's a little more uncertain.
0: So, Jonathan, I'm, I'm curious. You, you have a, an article coming out this weekend about the top storylines to watch. And I wasn't going to hit on this one, but since Jim mentions it in the context of the mock, teams like the White Sox who have tendencies to go towards a college That or a college arm. Um, Is that the kind of thing that that is informing your mock draft? Or is it as much connecting, you know, who was seen at what game in terms of the the process?
1: Well, I mean, in in a perfect world, we're talking to sources we have within that team. Uh, Hopefully they're willing to actually speak somewhat candidly. That doesn't happen that often. So it's a combination of what, you know, what other teams, like right behind them usually think they're doing because they will try to reach out. Um, and i'm'm I'm I'm, I'm, make, I'm looking at the draft order right now. So I'm just picking arbitrarily. I don't this hasn't actually happened, but maybe I would talk to someone with the Braves at nine and they've been talking to the Padres, Reds, and Rangers at six seven eight. and they might be more willing to talk about that. What they've done in the past definitely comes into play. I mean, I know, you know, Jim was talking about the the tipping point for the White Sox at three, you know, that's what keeps making me pause. We've all put CJ Abrams there uh, a few times, but they haven't taken a high school player uh, (laughs) since Courtney Hawkins. That worked out well. um, Right, exactly. Um, So that does make you pause. It doesn't make you completely row out the window that they would take C.J. Abrams, obviously, otherwise we wouldn't put him there. But it it certainly comes into play, I think, maybe more so later on in the draft when we just have a a feel that they're interested in a slew of guys. And if one fits the kind of mold that that team tends to go in the direction of, maybe that's who ends up getting the, the nod later on
2: the one nice thing about this and i i don't know if you feel the same way Jonathan but I won't speak for you but I'm gonna guess that you will say you do what I like about the mock draft process is I feel like we're helping teams as well we're, we're very fortunate you can't trade picks like you can in other sports so it's not like the nfl where all the teams lie to all the reporters because they don't want anybody to know what they're doing you can't trade so even if you make your intentions known or you open up a little bit about them you don't have to worry like oh like hey i'm i'm 24 and i'm the indians and if i tell jonathan mayo like you know candidly what we're doing the dodgers are going to trade up in front of us but the teams kind of want to know too hey, what are you hearing? Is this guy going to get here? Where do you think this guy goes? And while they do some of that on their own, they're also doing a bunch of other things like signability and actually evaluating the players that because Jonathan and I talk to so many people, they can get from us in one phone call what it would take them perhaps dozens of phone calls to put together. And again, not that our information is sacrosanct and we've got it all nailed and I know exactly who's going where – but well, we can, you know, it's like a two way street. And so I think because of that, and because you don't have to worry about NFL, you know, like type deal where somebody's going to trade up and take your guy if you make it known you like the guy, um, people are, are in general pretty open. And again, Jonathan and I are also old. We've been doing this for sure. however many decades it is now. Um, and so people also know that they can trust us. And if they tell us something like, hey, you know, off the record, here you go. We're not going to say, "Hey, you know, scouting director of Team X says this." Like, right? Like, so it, it, there's a good, good amount of trust and, and help we can give people.
0: Right. That's that's so good. This is good. The, the making of the, you know, it's a little behind the curtain stuff. This is this is very interesting, uh, process stuff. But let's dive into another one of the storylines uh, that I believe you'll be watching, Jonathan, uh, and something that we've been talking about all spring long, which is. When will the first pitcher be selected? Uh, this is seems to be a historically weak uh, crop, certainly of college pitching, if not also high school pitching. So, Jonathan, when and, and who can we expect to be the first pitcher to hear their name called? We'll see what Jim says on his mock tomorrow. Uh, what, what are you feeling in, in that regard?
1: Well, I mean, if you look at pretty much every mock, uh, and that includes Jim and mine, we've had – one pitcher in one spot, and that's been Nick Lodolo, the lefty from, from TCU, going to the Reds at seven. Now, I have not talked to anybody in a little bit. A lot can change. Um, you know, uh, you know, Jim's working on it right now. Uh, you know, even some of the other people that do, um, do mocks have had similar, although it's not been universal. But I, I still think that he is likely to be the first pitcher. Uh, if you want to sort of take the long odds. You, you know, Jackson Rutledge uh, would be a guy who could sneak up maybe into the top six if the Padres, you know, decide they wanted to go uh, in that direction. Alec Manoa from West Virginia is, is another name that's being brought up. And that is kind of it. And Matt Allen is the best high school pitcher, uh, but I've not heard his name really strongly in the top 10. Um, I know there are some people who thought he belonged in the top 10 a little while ago, but I really think it's going to be, Yeah, I still think that Lodolo is the, is the favorite to to be the first one to go.
2: And, And I would right now, and I don't think it's going to change between now when I start banging out this mock draft, put Nick Lodolo to the Reds at number seven again. (laughs) Um, I do agree with you. I think Rutledge and Manoa are the next two guys. I think Zach Thompson from Kentucky is also like right on the heels of that group. Although it's my understanding, he did not participate fully uh, in the MRI program. Um, And so that is going to spook some teams. Uh, given his history of shoulder injury in high school and elbow issues last year. Um, so uh, I think he's right there, and, and George Kirby from Elon will go right behind them. But I think Lodolo, again, I think the Reds would love for one of the, the, the top you know bats to come down to him at seven. It's probably not going to happen. I do think that if... you know We're talking about three being the tipping point with the White Sox. If the White Sox go Vaughn, the Marlins take the day at four... I do think Detroit would take Riley Green, who's who's the best all-around high school bat in the draft, him and Brett Beatty, at five. Although, I do think Detroit would at least consider maybe going college and would think about either uh, Hunter Bishop of Arizona State or Nick Lodolo at five. So I think Lodolo could go five, maybe sneaks into six. But I still think if, you were, if we were setting a line in Vegas, you're over under – who's the first pitcher the, the most popular the, the 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 most popular bet would be Nick Lodolo and he goes 7
0: Okay, so that's that's good. That that is that sounds pretty actionable. I appreciate that that insight there, and we'll see. And we're going to talk a little bit more about some of those high school pitchers on uh, later on in this show. Uh, but I want to talk about another big picture thing that is not necessarily one spot. In fact, not two spots, three spots, four spots, five spots, or six spots. Seven picks in the first seventy-five belong to the Arizona Diamondbacks. Now we have seen some teams have a boatload of draft picks due to you know free agent compensation or trading picks or unsigning signing guys. Um, but this is truly Going to be one heck of a haul for Arizona. So usually, yeah, of course, you're going to try and get the most talent amount possible. But based on the front office, based on the draft tendencies, uh, Jonathan, what kind of class do you think we could see from from Arizona?
1: I mean, they could do they could do pretty much whatever they want um, in terms of what that class would look like. Uh, I hope that you know they they, they aggressively go after high end talent. Um you know, we've talked about this a few times and you know, the cautionary tale is really the the raise in 2011 and that didn't go so well other than Blake Snell. Um, they have an interesting hybrid approach in their draft room, uh, which I think largely, you know, will work for them, especially in, in this regard. And what I mean by that is that they have, on the one hand, they have, you know, Amiel Sade, uh, who brings a, a more sort of, data and analytic approach uh, to evaluating players. And then you've got Derek Ladner, the scouting director, who, uh, for lack of a better term, is more sort of old school scouting. And I think they've learned to kind of coexist and figure things out. I mean, if you look like last year, uh, they weren't afraid to take high school players and they didn't sign one of them, but they're they're not even all that upset about that. And they have the extra picks now. So, you know, they should be able to sort of wait and see what comes to them. Uh, You know, they, because they, they pick, uh, it's not just, you know, five picks in the second round or, you know, the comp round after 16, you know, for those picks at 26, 33 and 34, if some of those names a little higher up, start to drop down a little bit, then they can not even hesitate. Uh, So like if uh, Brady Singer or Matt Libertor, I'm thinking of two guys who we all thought were going to go higher and didn't, uh, and Libertor didn't end up signing for, for above pick value, but I'm just using that as an example. uh, They could, they could do that. If some of the high school arms sort of filter down, because that's often what happens, they don't have to worry. Well, are we not going to be able to sign Brendan Malone because he's around at 33? Um, I don't think he's going to make it to 33, mind you. But uh, if he did, then they could decide to pull the trigger.
2: The interesting thing, if you look back at all these teams who've had the, the, these great you know, bounties of all these extra picks, is nobody ever hits on them. I mean, before the, the Rays, the team that had the most picks early before the second round was the Montreal Expos in 1990, when they had one of the best scouting staffs of all time, and it was led by Gary Hughes, and they had three or four scouts who became scouting directors, and they were just crushing it talent-wise, building, you know, the that, that great 1994 Expos team that, that got waylaid by the strike, and they had seven, no, they had eight, I think, of the first 50 picks, <laughs> and the best player they got was Rondell White, you know, he was pretty good, and the second best player they got was Gabe White. I mean, it was just, it was, like, and, and that was, if you were going to say, oh, that team's going to clean up, that, that would have been the all-time situation. And, you know, looking back at the teams who've had four or, or more picks in the top 50, um you know, they've got seven, seven, top 75, there's only one team that really had three good big leaguers, you know, of, of long careers. And that was the 2005 Red Sox with Jacoby Ellsbury and Clay Buchholz and Jed Lowry. And interesting enough, Amiel was part of that 2005 Red Sox scouting department. But it's, it's weird. Like, no matter how, you know, if you look at teams that have a ton of picks, good scouting departments, bad scouting departments, hey, they're going to spend on it. No, they got to be thrifty because they have so many picks. However you slice it up, teams have not taken advantage of the situation like, like you think they might. I mean, nobody's ever, like, nailed, like, you know, four or five right. guys in the first two rounds. It, it, it's, it, you know, it, 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 it's, it, it's, it's great to have the picks. I, we both know the Dimebacks are thrilled to have all these picks, but history tells you that of that so 75, you know, seven out of the top 75, if they get two good big leaguers, you know, of, of lengthy careers, then they're doing pretty well.
0: Right. And I, I would say time is, you know, jury's still out, obviously, on last year's Royals class. Uh, Wade, they, I believe they had the most picks uh, towards the top of the draft. And they, I, I think, surprised a lot of people took. I think like seven straight college guys when people were, were wondering if they'd be maybe going the high school route. So we'll see how Arizona decides to, to mix and match uh, with all those picks in the top 75. That will definitely be something to watch. Uh, so I want to go a little bit broader here. Um, obviously, one of the fun parts of the draft is seeing guys that you know maybe it's not as fun for you when you're mocking and then suddenly a guy goes that you had no idea was going to go in the first round. But Maybe can you guys give us some names that could be going in the first round that are not going to be on uh, every single mock, but wouldn't be surprised to see their, their name jump all the way up onto day one. Uh, Jonathan, why don't you give me a name that you could see jump in the first round?
1: A surprising name to jump into the first round. Um, hmm. Well, if I were going to pick someone really surprised, well. Typically, if I'm going to pick someone surprising, I'm going to pick, like, a, maybe a high-end athlete. Uh, and, you know, we've had Maurice Hampton sort of popping up right. in first-round mocks. So um, I will go with the other uh, the other two-way player, and I've not heard his name whatsoever in the first round, but uh, I'll say Jerry Ely. Ooh, uh, the okay. Two-sport guy um, that someone may decide... Uh, again, it would have to be like the Dodgers or the, or the Diamondbacks with all those picks. Somebody with extra picks that could afford to sign them away from football. Now, I, this is literally the first time I've heard his name mentioned. In, <laughs> <laughs> so, coming out of um, your own
2: mouth is what you're saying, right? <laughs>
1: well, that's one of years ago. I remember uh, the draft. I think it was like a winter meetings thing, and it was it was so long ago that uh, people weren't communicating always during via via cell phones. And, uh, but that we, I wanted to start a rumor with like a a scouting director type and see how long before it got reported. Um, So I'm saying it now. And then by this weekend, we're gonna talk to somebody and they're like, hey, are you hearing that Jerry and Neely might go in the first round? Um, In all seriousness, I think that that would be the kind of uh, player uh, because the, the rest of the players I might think about
0: are all, have all been mentioned somewhere already. Jim, who who you got? Who you got? So, a name? Uh, I, I do like the pick, but but what do you think?
2: I'm gonna give you a, a few, and I don't I don't think Jerry Neely's going the first round. I, I think he's gonna be too tough to sign. I think he's a second pick guy. So I will poo poo your rumor, Jonathan. But I think you could go with. A, there's gonna be a lot of college bats taken the first round a, in the second half. Of a rumor. I, I, <laughs>
0: I was gonna you. say exactly. I wouldn't call that a rumor.
2: <laughs> uh, and then, um, but anyway, what I was gonna say is. Like, I think you could see more college bats go if, if if the guys we all think are going the first round run out. I think you could see, you know, these are guys we don't have in first-round territory in our top 200. You don't see them in a lot of mock drafts. I think UCLA's Michael Toglia could go in the first round, first baseman. I think there could be a couple teams that might take Louisville first baseman, Logan Wyatt in the first round. Uh, Matt Wallner of Southern Miss got to slow start and really finished strong. He's hit for power for three years. I think he could uh, – jump into the first round. He, he's another one. So those are, those are three guys. And I do think that some of the college pitchers could get um, pushed into the first round because like right now, I think we, we both keep pro- projecting about six of them, which seems light for 34 pick first round. So you might see guys like Ethan small could go in the first round. Um, maybe John Ducksack go in the first round. They're both sec lefties. You know, there's going to be you know, Nasim Nunez. I don't think we've ever really put in the first round. He might sneak in there. So, um. Yeah, you know, I'm sure. You know, the last six or seven picks of the first round are, are going to be very wide open, and there'll be names we don't mention at all that that, that go in there to somebody.
0: Uh, now we are a very positive, optimistic show. We obviously want to focus on the good, but I am curious if there is a name maybe in the top. 20 of your draft board right now that you could see falling, maybe not because of signability reasons, but maybe just because the on them is more split in the industry than the average top prospect. Uh, Jim, could you see anyone that, that might actually be falling more if had a maybe not as spring as we expected? Uh, kind of a name that they might go later than expected.
2: Uh, um, I mean, I, you know, the guys who are going at the very top of the draft, I think the one guy who, who could last a little bit longer than we expect, just based on the rumor mill right now, would be C.J. Abrams. I don't think he's fallen out of the top 20. Um, looking at guys in our top 20, um, on our top 200, no. Uh, <laughs> look at this. I don't think any of these guys are going to fall too far. I mean, maybe, you know, Brendan Malone, who's number 20 on our list, and he's a high school right-hander, or or, or Matt Allen, who we talked about, who's, who's the best high school pitcher, but, you know, one of the tougher signs. I, I think it's going to take at least four million to sign him. Maybe they fall a little bit um you know maybe they fall to somebody's second pick but there's nobody i'm looking here at our list i mean there's really nobody i'm still scrolling down i'm into the 30s there's nobody we have like on our top 200 when we we re- rejiggered the order when sure. we expanded 200 that i'm looking at going oh man we got the guy about 10 spots too high so i don't think there's anybody who's got like an anchor tied around no cinder block tied around anybody's ankles who, who who's dropping rapidly
0: fair enough fair enough uh and then I, it sounds like Jonathan, you 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 mostly agree with that.
1: Yeah, I do. I think for those reasons that uh, that Jim said, you know, the, the high school arms are always hard to pinpoint. And if a Brendan Malone or a Daniel Espino didn't go in that first round proper, you know, it, it wouldn't it wouldn't completely sh- shock me. That doesn't mean that they're not going to end up getting first round money. Um, but other than that, unless there's something you know that pops up over the weekend about a major medical issue with a with a player then that we don't know about yet I don't I don't think there isn't anybody that really looks like oh this guy could really completely tumble out of the first round
0: so uh, we, we found out today that there will be four players uh, attending the draft uh, on Monday. And this is always a fun thing to see the guys in the room hearing their names called. Uh, the ones that will be in attendance uh, at the caucus uh, in the caucus will be uh, Jackson Rutledge, who, who is currently number 12, uh, the, the right-handed pitcher from San Jacinto Junior College in Texas. Uh, Brennan Malone, the high school pitcher who you mentioned uh, just earlier. Brett Beatty, who we've talked a little bit about this spring, a high school third baseman in Texas, and Daniel Espino, another high school right-hander. So uh, the order you guys have him in uh, on on the board is is Rutledge, Beatty, Malone, Espino. Uh, We'll see again, Jim, what you have on the mock there. Uh, But Jim, uh, we'll start with you here. Who do you think would you bet would be the first of those guys to hear their name called uh, on Monday night?
2: I think it's about... I'll even give you a percentage here. I think it's about 80% that Jackson Rolich is the first guy taken. I think he goes somewhere probably between 9 and 12. Okay. I think he's going to be in play for 9, 10, 11, 12, basically in play till he comes off the board. There are some rumors that won't go away, that the Rangers might cut a deal at 8, which I don't know if I necessarily would believe but if they do cut a deal at eight, like I think they're going to take Hunter Bishop who just fits their profile and that's where he belongs. And it's a great fit. But if they do cut a deal, maybe Brett Beatty could go ahead of Jackson Rutledge. Um, but I, I think it's at least 80% that Jackson Rutledge is the first guy taken.
0: Jonathan, is that, that, that's fair?
2: Yeah, no, I think, uh, I think that's right.
1: Um, yeah. I've heard the, the, those rumors too, but they've not, I've not had anyone sort of substantiate it. Uh, so I, I I like the 80-20 split. I, you know, you want 90-10? Sure. But
2: I think well, it does seem come to be – Come on, Jonathan. Be... I've done the math. I spent, the official. Like, cal- I spent a lot of time calculating that. It's 80%. <laughs> it's not 90%. Oh, wow. Okay,
0: spicing up the algorithm. I'll go that, 82%. I'm sorry. Really, uh, really messing no with, with Jim's math. <laughs>
2: Oh, it is okay. Jonathan's model. Jonathan's model is slightly different than my model, so we're, that's why we're coming. Right. Up to okay, numbers.
0: well, luckily we don't have to, to okay. wait that much longer to find out who was more correct, or maybe you will both be wrong, and eighty or eighty-two is is both going to be a bad answer. But we will find out soon enough. All right, well, there's a million questions I could ask you guys about the 2019 draft because it is so soon. But before we go. There has been a lot of the discussion this week. We have, uh, Jim, you have an article on Pipeline as well as a, a recently a produced MLB.com podcast courtesy of Anthony kasherman's Looking back at the 2009 draft, 10 years ago, Steven Strasburg going number one overall. Some guy named Mike Trout dropping to 25. Nolan Otto, Paul Goldschmidt, some other big names in that draft. Jim, you have an article on Pipeline uh, about this draft. Looking back on it. Uh, 10 years later. And I'm just curious, of course, Trout is the big name. Oh, how did he not go one? But what were some other big uh, reflections or things that you learned looking back on this class?
2: Yeah, you know, I, I mean, touching on Trout for a second, you know, I mean, I think fans are like, oh, geez, you know, how did he go 25th mm-hmm. in the draft? And and there were a couple things at play. I mean, one, the, you know, as one of my favorite skyline directors and Jonathan's favorite skyline directors would say the draft is hard. Like that's one, but I, I think the industry underrated how good the bat and the speed were on Mike Trout. I, you know, I think people saw them as plus and they were obviously much better than plus. And when I went back and was looking at my notes from 2009, you know, I looked at my, my final mock draft, then the night before the draft, tigers at nine athletics at 13 diamondbacks at 16 and 17 were, were the only teams I had that mentioned any interest. And You know, the other thing that happened is right before the the night, literally the night before the draft, word came out, Trout wanted two and a half million dollars. And this was back in the day before bonus pools when the commissioner's office would set a recommendation for each pick. So if Trout was going to get two and a half million dollars, that was top five pick money back then. Now, the commissioner's office set the slots lower than market value, which is another story. But anyway, like that was going to scare some teams off Trout too. But it was like this perfect storm for the Angels because their area scout loved him. Comparing him to Mickey Mantle, very famously, Greg Moorhart compared him to Mickey Mantle. And he played in the minors with Mike's father, Jeff, knew the family really well and really believed that Mike wanted to play pro ball over, you know, breaking the bank. Um, and so they had a great read on his talent, great read on his side ability. They took him. He wound up signing for slot, et cetera. One thing I'd forgotten about, because when I was going through there, there's all these storylines is I had forgotten. And it was a big deal at the time at number 14, In real life, the Rangers took Matt Perk out of Texas. It was a great year for high school pitching. Most of the guys didn't pan out. And I'd forgotten that Perk had agreed to a $6 million bonus with the Rangers. He had a deal. Nolan Ryan, Perk's father shaking shaking hands on it. But I had totally forgotten this. MLB, I guess the Rangers were having trouble keeping up with their payroll. MLB was like advancing them cash so they could make payroll and basically told the Rangers, we're fronting you money. You're not giving a high school pitcher $6 million. So they just didn't sign him. So that was one I I had totally uh, forgotten about. Um, And then you know, what's always fun doing these things is the guys who wind up making it into the first round that you wouldn't have thought of. You know, Kiki Hernandez, who I I knew nothing about at the time. I probably knew nothing about him in the minor leagues for a few years. Um, Was a great sixth round pick by the Astros. And then the one other uh, thing—I know I'm rambling here. Oddly enough, Nova Southeastern had one of the strongest you know, groups of big leaguers. They had JD Martinez who lasted until the 20th round. Uh, they had Mike fires who was almost 24. He'd spent some time off in between schools when he was going through college. He was at like three schools, but Mike fires wound up being a, a, a tremendous pick. The Astros, I mean, the brewers took him in the 22nd round. And then they also took um, Miko Mikolas was, was another, he was a seventh rounder that that's Nova Southeastern division two school had three of the best big leaguers. You know, Miklas did not make my redraft top 32 because he hasn't been, you know, in MLB for that long. But if he builds off what he did last year and we redid this story five years from now, Nova Southeastern could have three of these guys on here.
0: Yeah, not not what we expected uh, exactly. Now Jonathan, you had an interesting uh um, I would say, view, uh, literally up close of the Mike Trout situation. You were in studio 42 watching Mike Trout not drafted for 24 picks. Um, at the time, what was it like? Because obviously now it's very silly looking back. But but what was what was that like at the time?
1: Yeah, it wasn't that bad. I was the sideline reporter uh, that year, um, and you know, we all, we 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 always that was the first year that the draft was on MLB Network. Um, and it you know you luck out when the one player comes to the draft turns out to be the best player in baseball. Um, but it was funny because coming in and him coming, obviously he lived down the road. uh, There wasn't any expectation that he was going to go higher. So they were very comfortable. They, they weren't like thinking, Oh, he's going to go two, and then they're sitting there, you know, and it turns into a Brady Quinn moment, which is what agents and players are always nervous about that. an MLB network wouldn't do that anyway, in terms of sort of watching a kid sweat it out. Uh, but we went back to talking to him several times. I mean, I, I really don't remember right. what I asked him, probably like what he had for lunch, uh, you know, the time we, we finally got picked. But I do remember uh, sitting in the, in, the, in the dugout there with him in Studio 42, and it was in, in, in the 20s, and we were starting to get not, uh, information, you know, the family's talking to people that the Angels are gonna take him with one of their two picks. And then I'm told that we're going to go back and, and talk to him one more time. And I honestly I don't remember if that happened. I don't I don't actually recollect that. But I remember thinking like, well, he's going to get picked really soon. I, I don't know what I can ask him without being like, hey, you're going to get picked soon. Um, but he handled it with grace. His family was great, um, and it you know it was a it was it was a fun time for me. And I can I will take uh, all the way until he's inducted into Cooperstown the fact that I was the first person to interview him on national television.
0: That is that is a legitimately awesome, awesome accomplishment and a cool a cool story. All right, well, thank you guys so much for joining me. Obviously, you guys both have a lot of work to do before the draft begins on Monday. If you are interested in hearing more about the 2009 draft, definitely read Jim's article and check the full account podcast on iTunes. But that is the end of this show, this podcast. I am your host, Jordan Shustman, for Jonathan Mayo and Jim Callis. Thank you for listening. the pipeline podcast and we will talk to you after the draft